uh, for the last time this semester, I want to welcome you to RUF. What is RUF? Uh, by now, you hopefully know that it stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. And uh, we say that every week because if you're new, we want you to know who we are, what we're doing. And if you're not new, if you've been here for a while, we want to remind you of who it is that we're trying to be. Uh, we're trying to be a uh, community that we want to grow together in the same way as we're growing, uh, growing with God. We want to grow closer to one another. Uh, we're learning to love God. That you may be here tonight um, growing in your faith. You're excited about your faith. You are energized by your faith. Uh, we want RUF to be a place that you can uh, grow in that, that you can develop that, that you can learn more about that. Maybe you're here tonight and you have had faith, uh, but you're struggling with some questions and some doubts. Uh, that's why we say that we want RUF to be a place for you to ask good questions. We want you to ask questions about uh, your doubt and to engage it and to uh, and confront it head on. We don't want to pretend like it doesn't exist. And then we, uh, maybe you're here tonight and you have no interest in faith, no interest in spiritual things. You just kind of wandered in uh, because you think that the uh, Instagram post that looks like the Midnight's album cover is just so brilliant and so funny. Whoever made that. Um, it was me. I'm sorry. Um, but we hope that you'll find something deep and meaningful that will, that will change your life as the gospel of Jesus Christ does. We're learning to love Carson Newman. We want to be present and active and involved on campus. Uh, and so that's who we are. That's what we're doing. We say we want to do it together. So closing out the semester with Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. And my, uh, my campus minister, um, Les Newsom, I talk about him a lot. I quote him a lot. He, he preached on this passage, and uh, I'm stealing his intro because it was, it was, it was actually a really, really great, uh, a really great analogy. Um, so there's a good chance that if you're here tonight, that one day, someday, in your life, at some point, you will end up married. Now, at this point in life, you're like, like oh, no, not me, never, this is never going to happen, whatever. Like, drop the false humility, it's probably going to happen. Um, and, and, and you will most likely go through the steps that lead up to marriage. You'll, you'll, you'll meet somebody, uh, you will uh, stalk them on Instagram or some other form of social media. Uh, you'll kind of find out the things, the posts that they've liked, maybe the things that they've shared. Uh, maybe you'll dig through to see if there's any old pictures of them uh, being close to somebody or whatever. You'll, you'll do that whole thing, and then uh, maybe maybe you'll talk to them. Maybe. You know, maybe you'll have a, a conversation in person, but more likely it'll be a, a DM or a text of some sort. And then you'll, you'll sort of like do the, the awkward, like, what is this? What is this not? I don't really know. I can't really figure this out. And you'll spend all your time together, but you'll be like, I don't know if he or she really likes it. Like, and it's just going to be this whole weird thing. But eventually, you're going to have the DTR talk to define the relationship. And you'll be like, we are dating. And if you're lucky, you won't have to date for very long before you get engaged. And then, hopefully, you will not be engaged for very long because engagement is terrible. People are like, oh, it's wonderful. It's, engagement is the worst. In, the whole process, engagement is the worst part. So maybe you'll be engaged short, and, and, then, and then you'll get married. And all this is going to be over, right? And that's how we think about it. That once the wedding happens, then all that stuff is over. And in a sense, it is. But in a whole new sense, you've started something completely different. And you will realize that what on the day of your wedding is like, amazing euphoria it's elation it's excitement it's it's everything that you've wanted it to be and it probably will be 
And it's, and it's all of a sudden your doorway to relational fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, happiness, everything. That your ticket will be punched and that will be it. But then in like a week or maybe a month or maybe six months, you're going to realize that marriage wasn't actually the end of anything. It was the start of a whole new thing. Even in marriage, you're going to realize that your relational issues are not fixed you are going to realize that you will still be frustrated with your relationship. You will still be frustrated with your sex life. You will still be frustrated with all the things that people have been telling you marriage is going to be the solution to. You will still find yourself at odds with your spouse. It's going to happen. Why? It's because marriage is a fight. Marriage is two people figuring out how to live together how to build a life together, how to build a family together. And that's a fight. Now, it's a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. And you should all enter into it happily. But it is a fight. And I think that's a great illustration for what the Christian life looks like. Because especially in a place like this, that places a very, very high value on conversion. And conversion is good. Obviously, like, if you're not converted, we would long for you to be converted. Like, yes, conversion is amazing. But we place such a high value on it that what happens is you get to that moment, right? You walk the aisle, you pray the prayer, and then what, right? What happens next? It always gets presented as the end of something. It's your old death. It's your old life. It's gone. And how many testimonies do you hear where it's like, my life was awful, and I did all this bad stuff, and everything was terrible, but then I like went to a thing and I walked out and I prayed a prayer and then I met Jesus and everything is great and I'm always in a good mood and every time I hear oceans I cry and I, had, I do one more oceans reference. Um, <laughs> but that's the story, right? That's the way that you hear it, that all of a sudden you get saved and all of a sudden like, bam, everything is new and fixed and amazing and wonderful and salvation, conversion, getting saved, whatever you want to call it, it always gets presented as being the end of something. And it is. But it's also the beginning. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 7 is that justification, the moment of salvation, that it is the beginning of a fight. And it is a fight that has a secure and sure end. But it is still a fight. And Paul shows us that here. What's really interesting to me about this passage is that Paul easily could have skipped it. If you're kind of following the flow of his argument, he could have ended in 7-6 about being released from the law um, about all that stuff we talked about last week, to immediately jumping into 8.1, that there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Yet Paul kind of hits the pause button on building his argument and gives us a look into this incredibly personal confession that he's making about his own life. And it's kind of like one uh, side note of, last note of introduction, like there, there's a debate, scholars have a debate over what's going on here. Some people say that this is Paul kind of reverting to the old Paul before he came to know Jesus. And those people are wrong. Like there's a lot of reasons why I'm not going to go into those. Paul is talking about the normal Christian experience. Paul's talking about the normal Christian life, his own present struggle. And so um, I forgot to put the sermon in a sentence up um, that's my bad. That's from several weeks ago. Um, the good news for people who know that they need to change is that the Christian life is a fight that's already been won. And I'm not actually going to talk about the already been won part, but that kind of helps add to the thing, whatever. The Christian life is a fight. And the Christian life is a fight that the law started. Um, 
one of the, the, the joys of knowing my children, uh, which some of you do, is watching them fight because it's hilarious. Um, Judson is twice as big as Ford. He is stronger than Ford. He is smarter than Ford. And yet Ford still beats him up. Like at some point, a switch is going to flip. He's going to be like, no, I can, I can beat this kid up. And we'll have a different set of problems to deal with at that point. But it's kind of funny to watch it now. But, um, but as soon as something happens, every time, Judson runs in the room and says, Ford started it. And he's not always wrong. Um, but he's not always right either. Sometimes he starts it. But, um, but if you think about any, any good fight, any good fight that you've ever seen or been a part of or whatever, um, every fight has a starting point that somebody eventually starts it. Somebody throws the first punch. And in Romans 7, verses 7 through 12, Paul says that it's the law that started the fight. See, Paul starts to tell his testimony that Paul was a Pharisee, and he was, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, one of the, he was one of the best Pharisees, and he was really good at following the law. And, and, he, and, he, and he worked his way through the Ten Commandments in a way that he was like, all right, no other gods, check, did that one. No graven images, check, did that one. Honor my father and mother, check, did that one. Don't steal, kill, or commit adultery, check, 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 did it all. But Paul's working his way through the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about how he was able to follow the law. But then he gets to the Tenth Commandment, which is do not covet. And when he gets to the Tenth Commandment, he falls apart. He says, this is the one that showed me that I could not keep the law. Now, why would this specific commandment do this to Paul? And I think it's, uh, I think it's because the first nine commandments have something fairly obvious in common. They all deal with your external behavior. That you can, like, not literally bow your knee to another god. If you can not, you know, pull the trigger to kill someone or uh, sleep with someone who's not your spouse, then you can convince yourself that you haven't broken the law. I've never done these things. And, and uh, Lord willing, like, most of us have not done a lot of these things. That you could conceivably go through the first nine commandments and in some form or fashion say, I've kept that law. But when Paul gets to the 10th commandment, that's where he meets us because coveting is purely an internal action. Coveting is an attitude. It is desiring something that is not yours and it only exists in the heart. And Jesus actually hits us with this heart in the Sermon on the Mount that, sure, maybe you've never committed the actual sin of murder. Maybe you've never committed the actual sin of adultery, but have you ever been unrighteously angry? Have you ever lusted? And then Paul says that once he started to realize that, everything spiraled. Everything went out of control in his life because he realized the more that he was trying to fight sin on his own power, the more he realized how sinful he was. And if you go back to verse 5 from last week, uh, we talked about or we read about how the law provokes us to sin. And right, that's something that we all understand. You know, the, you know the, the, the pink elephant game. If I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, whatever you do, what are you immediately going to think of? A pink elephant. Chase might think of a blue elephant, but still like half breaking the law there. It's like, it's like every time I see a sign that says, do not step on the grass, like what do I do? I immediately step on the grass. Like every time I see the speed limits, like speed limit 65, what do I do? I go 70. Why? Because, because somebody told me not to. 
It's the only reason. It's the only reason we do stuff sometimes. Because the law provokes in us, in me, the absolute refusal to see anything other than myself as the one who gets to call the shots. That the law pushes against my ability to be who I want to be, how I want to be him. Uh, St. Augustine in his confessions tells a story where he and some of his friends, they went into a pear orchard and they stole some pears. And he reflects on this story after his conversion and he confesses that they weren't, they weren't hungry and the pears weren't even that good. They had better, better pears at home. They had more of them. And they stole them and they threw them away. They didn't even eat them. And Augustine writes, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. He did it solely because it was fun. He did it because he wanted to. And Paul says that from this point on, the law killed him. So the law revealed his sin, it provoked his sin, and it condemned his sin. And the way the 10th commandment is written is the law pointing out to Paul and Paul having to admit it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. We're coming way back to that song. So just, I told all of you to listen to whatever. But when we realize this, we realize that we're the problem. When we realize that the problem and our ability to keep the law exists in our hearts, it's not anything we can do outwardly. It's inside of us. We immediately try to distract ourselves. We immediately try to move on to something else to keep us from thinking about that. And there's all kinds of ways that we do this. And pretty much everything that I'm going to say are things that I've gotten from y'all in our one-on-ones or in my, my own story. But, but maybe, maybe what you've realized is you start to come to terms with your own sinfulness and how you're the problem. You start to think that like, okay, if I can just chase that high again, right? You remember that spiritual high that you were on. Maybe you went to, maybe you went to Young Life Camp or you went to a church camp and you got saved, Right? And the energy, the energy from that moment, like it carried you for a while. And you went home from that youth rally or young life camp or that church service or whatever, and you were on fire. And you were just, you were just going for Jesus. But as time went on, you kind of found yourself back in a rut. That may be like some of those sins that you were like so convicted about at the moment that you got saved, like they just haven't quite gone away. And maybe they're not as strong, but they're still there. And so what do you do? You start to try to chase that high. Like, let me go to, let me go to another event. Let me go to another concert. Let me go to another famous speaker. Let me go to passion. Let me go and do some of these different things. And those aren't, those aren't bad things necessarily, but we go into them so often trying to chase the high of what we once had. You'll do anything to get back to that feeling to distract you from what's going on inside. Or maybe you try to move towards some form of self-improvement, right? You're confronted with the depth of your sin, even after coming to faith, and you try your best to just like, to just try your best. You know, you, you give in, uh, you join an accountability group or you get special software on your computer or you give your roommate your screen time password or, uh, or, 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 or whatever, so that you can have one little area to point to your life to say, you know what, everything else is out of control, but I'm doing okay here. And sort of what you find out is that like, 
the one place that you're figuring out how to control, it's actually not that difficult to control. But everything else is falling apart. But you're doing it to find that one thing to distract you from what's really going on in your heart. That maybe you just want to try to work harder. That, that it's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm saved now, so uh, I've got to start making more disciples. Right? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. It's this, like, okay, so it, like, if each one of you will go and, and disciple three people, all you got to do is three people. If you disciple three people, and then they go and disciple three people, and then those three people all go and disciple, then we'll reach the, we'll reach the world in a generation. Like, and Jesus is going to come back. Yes, thank you. Um, you were in all of my college Sunday school classes. Um, and look, again, this is not me saying, like, don't, don't disciple people. If that's, like, what you're called to do, like, of course do that. It's wonderful. It's good. But, but we, we, we do that because there's that nagging feeling inside of us that, like, we're not fixed the way that we should be. So if I can devote enough time or enough social media energy or enough effort or whatever, then I'll have something to point to that distracts me from what's going on inside. Maybe you start to doubt. If I'm really a Christian, I wouldn't still be doing these things. And so you go and you walk the aisle again or you get baptized again or, or, or whatever. And, and this time, this time you're really going to mean it. Because hopefully this thing is going to be the thing that's going to distract you from what's really going on inside your heart. And all of this stuff, and there's, there's good things about this stuff, okay? There, there, there is. Like, you know, like, yeah, fight your sin, do that. But all this stuff about like going all out in worship or being part of a movement, right? We love to be parts of movements or a movement in this generation or like whatever, whatever that even means. Um, or self-improvement or even the right kinds of like doubt, like all of these things, they sound really good. And maybe, maybe you can convince yourself enough to quiet down the fight that's always going on inside of you. Maybe you can just drown it out. And all that kind of ends up being is just more works righteousness more of trying to work and earn your favor with God so that he'll overlook that stuff and you can just move on and you know this stuff is this stuff is personal like it's really personal to me because because like it, and it, it like it's a bit it's kind of a bit and some of you even expect it and you know probably what I'm about to say but it's the whole thing that I always talk about like walking the aisle or, like riding your sin on a stick or like throwing it into a lake or like whatever and that stuff hurts me because, like, I did that for a long time. I, my freshman year of college, I literally went to a, a thing where a guy, like, talked about the gospel while he built a cross. And then, like, at the end of it, everybody went down. Like, thousands of people went down. They wrote, like, a sin on a cross and nailed it to the cross. And then they gave us a little chain to put on our chain link, to put on our keychain to be like, let this chain remind you that you're a disciple of Jesus now. And it's like, why do I still feel terrible? <laughs> Why, why did every one of us go back to our dorm room and do just like whatever that thing was that we were hoping this was going to finally cure us of? And so here's the question. What if experiencing Jesus doesn't happen at a worship service or a long string of good quiet times or any signs of external actions at all, but in the fight, in the daily fight of the Christian life? And again, go to worship services, fight your sin. Like, I'm not saying don't do those things. But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. So now we look at what Paul talks about it. And I, uh, 
the um, the year before we came up here, I uh, I spent a year uh, as a substitute teacher and a teacher um, at a classical school in Tuscaloosa. And for whatever reason, the the headmaster of that school still like has me attached to her uh, Google Drive. So like certain things get uploaded, and most of the time I just delete them because you know it's like it's not like super private information, but it's it's not it's not my business. But um, but but a few weeks ago I opened it up. And uh, opened up my drive, and there was a document there that just said sentences. And it was a picture of a document that just looked like a kid's handwriting. And I was like, what, what is this? And apparently this child, who I'm going to assume is maybe like fifth grade, uh, got in trouble and had to write 75 times on a piece of paper, front and back, I will not do what I did again. Over and over again. I will not do what I did again. I will not do what I did again. And it was funny because I can, I can imagine like... I can imagine my own children repeating that back to me. Um, But it was also funny because, um, and maybe not even funny, it was also kind of like, man, kid, like, why are you messing with my heart? Like, like what, like, how do you don't know me? Like, back off, dude. Um, Because isn't that how we all feel? Right? Like, how many times have we laid in our bed at night after doing whatever it was we promised we would never do again, just repeating over and over, like, I will not do what I did again. I will not do what I did again. And I think that's kind of what Paul is going for when he says that, when he says this, he says, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate for. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but the, but not the ability to carry it out for. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you relate to that? Like, is there anything about what Paul is saying here, about his life, about the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the New Testament, basically, confessing this? And Tim Keller says that these words are both a great warning and a great comfort to us. Um, And they're a warning because they remind us that none of us are ever going to be so advanced that the war with sin is over. See... (laughs) We do this thing where we get older, but just never wiser, right? Like, we feel like I should be further along than I am. That's a good description of the Christian life. The more we grow in grace, the more we learn how badly we needed that grace to begin with. And our, and our continued fight with sin shows us that. And again, if the Apostle Paul of all people experienced this, if the disciples who spent every waking moment with Jesus still experience this, why wouldn't you? Why would you be immune to sin and to its, and to its attraction, and to its um, entrapment? But they're also a comfort because they point us continually back to God's grace. Because God's grace never allows us to get to the point that we can look and say, oh, don't need you anymore. I'm going to move on. I'm going to do something else. And I love the way that... Um, I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in, in, in Prince Caspian, that Lucy, uh, Lucy sees Aslan again for the first time after a while. And she says, uh, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. And, you know, this is how sanctification works. This is how growth in grace works. That the more that you grow in grace, the more you're going to realize what a fight against sin in the Christian life is. 
And our normal temptation and our fight with sin is to, is to just automatically default to like, well, I'm a terrible person. Or maybe I'm not really dead enough to sin. But instead, it's a reminder that as Keller says, Romans 7 encourages us that temptation and conflict with sin and even some relapses into sin are consistent with being a growing Christian. And so if you can relate to Paul with what he's saying here, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, that the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I hate, I do. If you can say those things, maybe you're living the Christian life the way that you're supposed to. Right? Maybe that's what the Christian life is actually all about is growing in your fight with your sin and growing in your hatred of your sin to continue to grow to see how big Jesus is, to see how big and important the cross is. And then Paul goes on to say, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is what Paul means with that because there's the, there's, the, uh, there's the temptation um, to just be like, well, I mean, it's in the Bible. I didn't do it. Sin did it. I'm going to blame it on that and I'm, I'm all scot-free. Right to, to stick with our Taylor Swift theme, it is the reputation version saying, oh, look what you made me do, right? This is not my fault. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when you are in Christ, the most basic thing about you, the most basic truth about you is different. That your desires are changed. Your goal in life is changed. That in Christ, your truest, like deepest, most foundational self does seek God and it does love his law. But there's this other entity, it's your flesh, it's your sin, and it's still around and it's still strong. I've quoted this before earlier in the semester, but it's, but it's this idea that like every day you have to wake up and drown the old Adam, but the problem is he's a really good swimmer. And your sin may beat you from time to time. You may give into it and you may even do it for seasons at a time. But even then, sin is no longer who you are. Sin is no longer me. Sin is it. Sin is something else. Sin is something that is alien. And it is something that you work and we fight. We work and we fight and we trust in Christ to kill it in us. And so if you're in Christ, when you take stock of your life and everything that's true about you, even when you don't feel like it's true, the most basic thing about you is that you are different. You are changed and you are a new creation in Christ. And this is what enables us to live and to pursue the fight. And so I am going to just quote Antihero in almost all of its entirety as we wrap this up. Because I think that this came out like the most providential time ever as I'm like working through the sermon and thinking about this. But but Taylor tells us that she has this thing where she gets older but just never wiser, that midnights become her afternoons. Uh, when her depression hits, or when, her, when, when my depression works the graveyard shift, all the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. Who can't connect to that? Right? Who, who, who hears that and is like, no, that's not me. That's not, I don't, no. No, we all do. Right? Because at some point we all look at our lives and we think, shouldn't I be farther along than this? Like at this point, I should be older. I am older. I should be wiser. I should know more. I should have this more together. And then when that happens, you start to spiral. And everything you've ever done wrong in your life starts to come back. 
well, I, I said this and I did that. And, and you start to see faces of the people that you've hurt. And, and we can all sort of relate to that. We all see that happening. And then she says, um, she says, I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. The tale is old as time. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving because you got tired of my scheming for the last time. And so here we are spiraling. We're not just dealing with the feelings of being stuck, that now we're deep in shame. That because of all this stuff, I did all this stuff because I'm still fighting these battles inside of me. I'm not lovable and people are going to leave me and you can't trust me. And so that's just it. And so she says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting. Always rooting for the anti-hero. And, and again, it's this realization that we're the problem. And it feels like everybody knows it. Everybody around us just looks at us and sees us as the problem. And they agree. And we deflect by doing anything but looking deeper inside. I think that the staring at the sun but never in the mirror is just absolute brilliance. I don't know what this next line exactly means, but sometimes I feel like everybody's a sexy baby. (laughs) And I'm a monster on the hill, too big to hang out, slowly lurching towards your favorite city, pierced through the heart but never killed. Don't you know what it feels like to be a monster? Don't you know what it feels like to feel like everything that you touch is going to be destroyed? And aren't you tired of voices, even voices in the church, even voices that are supposed to believe this book, telling you that you just suck? Like, good grief, get your act together. You should be past this. Don't we hate that? But can't we feel that? At some level, don't we all feel connected to that? And somehow everything we show up to ends up being torn down, torn to pieces. And then we try to disguise us running away or protecting ourselves as just self-care or self-improvement. But really we're just trying to force the issue to be just about us. It's about me and it's my work and I've got to do better, which is just covert narcissism disguises altruism. Like we really sold out for that illustration. But, but here's the thing. The Taylor story falls apart. Taylor's response to all this is a hilarious but telling story where she, uh, her daughter-in-law kills her for the money. And as they realize that she has left them out of the will, uh, they scream and realize that she's laughing at us from hell. Right? In Taylor's fantasy of how all of this works out, she's not even going to heaven. She's like, yeah, I'm going to hell. Like, that's fine. But basically what she's saying is like, I'm the anti-hero and I'm leaning into that and I'm embracing that. And that's sort of what we're tempted to do. But Paul gives us something better. Because Paul, after coming to this realization that he's the problem, that this evil lives in his heart, that his fight with sin is still a fight he will occasionally lose. He asked the question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? which again is probably just Greek for, yeah, I really am the problem. It really is me. But instead of leaning into it and embracing it and saying, you know what? I'm probably not actually a Christian. Let me go and work harder on myself. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That even as we grow in Christ, we never move away from this basic need, this basic truth. There is no next level of Christianity. 
There's nothing past this foundation that it is Jesus Christ who brought you in and it is Jesus Christ who carries you through. That he is the one who is building and changing and shaping and working in you. And it leads to the great proclamation of what we're going to kick next semester off with in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the condemnation that you feel in your own heart about doing that same thing that you do over and over and over again, that if you were in Christ, there is no condemnation left. And you can fight because the fight's already won. And you can be honest with yourself about who you really are. Right? I can't tell you how many times y'all sat down like, I, I did this thing and it was really bad, but like, that's just not who I am. And I don't like, no, that is who you are. And that's exactly who Jesus died for. And so it's an invitation to fight. It is not a fight that leads to shame and defeat and helpless cycles of guilt, but instead freedom and life in Christ. And I want you to consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again um, for this semester. Thank you for these students. Thank you for your word. God, we all, um, to some degree or another, I think can, can echo back what Paul is saying here about the struggle. God, about the feeling, about the, uh, God, just the constant wrestling in our own hearts with our sin and just this nagging feeling that we should be better off than we are. And yet, Paul turns our attention back to you. Lord, would you do this tonight? Would you draw our gaze off of ourselves? Would you draw our gaze, even for a little while, off of the fight, but onto you? Lord, would you do this tonight? Some of us need to believe this for the very first time. Some of us simply need to be reminded. But Lord, would you do these things for us? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.